This is God's house, and one of the things we just sense, like, in terms of a catchphrase is for the season, just welcome home. And it's been good to see some families, you know, and some people who are making their way back, who've been, you know, with us, but apart from in person. And truly, from the bottom of our hearts, welcome home if you are making your way back in person. And uh, for all of us here, you know, as we've been navigating all these different uh, restrictions and things like that, I just want to give a little brief update before we jump into the Word, just on where we're at here at Life Center. And so as we now are in stage three as of today, or as of Friday, but our first Sunday, um, restrictions are no longer a thing. So the only restrictions that we are, are being asked to maintain, of, besides the mask, of course, and things like that, is that we can properly distance people in our room. And so if you're wondering, how many people are allowed now in the auditorium? Uh, well, as, as long as we can maintain six feet, I mean, 5,000 or whatever. We probably couldn't do 5,000. But uh, So that's incredible. That's such a great, so, you know, it's such a great gift. And honestly, we believe that if God called us, if enough people needed to come and gather in person, man, we'd throw like 12 services on a Sunday morning. Pastor Sarah and the team are like, what? 12 services? But honestly, it's, if you, if you want, we will make a room for you if you want to be here in person. But as we exit stage three, you know, there are some things that, uh, you know, we, are, we need to be aware of. And it's like when you are uh, landing, you know, when you're in a plane and sometimes in descent, you hear the pilots like, well, put your seatbelts back on because there's going to be a little more uh, turbulence. And I think that the more and more we get like closer to the finish line uh, and, and naturally there's the restrictions lifted, I think that we're going to start experiencing a bit of turbulence spiritually and things like that. And so as a pastor, I just want to say that for us to be as a body, to be on guard and to be watchful for that because the enemy is going to use things that are controversial to our culture and try to inject it into the church and make it a divisional issue. And as pastor, it is, I am saying right now, we are one in Christ. We are one in Christ. So it doesn't matter where you're coming from, what your beliefs are on things, what you've done, what you haven't done. We're going to be one in Christ. And so what that means, too, as well, is that there's room for everybody here. And so when the mask mandate is lifted, whenever that happens, you are absolutely free to continue wearing a mask. If that is something that you would like to do, we love you, we respect you, and we will, we will maintain whatever you need to come because this is your home as much as it is my home. And so as, as leaders, as the serving teams, we will keep a mask on hand with us. And so if you are somebody who would like to continue wearing a mask and you would, in conversation, prayer, things like that, ask that a pastor in, in conversation or a team leader just wears a mask. We're here to serve you. And just so you know, because if you're watching online, you're wondering if as things, you know, I don't want things to get so ahead of me that I can't return. Well, there is room for you and we will do whatever it takes because we're family and we're going to rumble through these issues together. But at the end of the day, we will not let anything come between us because why? We're one in Christ. We are one in Christ. And so, but I'm excited. And as well, our children's ministry, we've um, we put on the date August 15th. So you can circle that. August 15th will be the return of Life Kids. I think we're going to start with like a water day outside. Um, but right now we're finishing up some renovations upstairs. Our whole upstairs is being renovated to serve our children and uh, the families in the church. And so starting August 15th, we'll see a return to our generation ministry. And Lord, we're saying, Lord willing, just forward, onward and upward. So 
All right, let's open up God's Word. So we're going to be reading from Matthew 5, 13, and as that will be on the screen as well. I want to read to you uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which will not be on the screen. But Matthew 5, 13, it says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know, this summer at Life Center, we've been diving into the subject of spiritual conflict because we believe it has great relevance, not just to where we're at as a church and in this moment, but where we are going, where God is leading us as a church. And doesn't it feel like in this moment, it feels like conflict just exists all around us? And you, it just feels like conflict has become this inescapable part of this moment. You know, whether it's political or scientific or, uh, or spiritual or doctor. And there's just conflict that seems to be around every corner. And if it feels like conflict is around every corner because, well, it is around every corner right now. And in fact, one well-known Christian author and missiologist by the name Ed Stetzer recently remarked, I thought it was interesting, and he said that we haven't seen this much collective conflict take place in, in our Western society since he targeted as the year 1968. Now, a lot of people don't remember. I don't remember 1968. I wasn't around during 1968. But what I am told and going on, what this man said, which I, I believe what he said is true, that in 1968, a lot of people forget that 1968 had as much conflict as 2020, 2021, if not even more. And a lot of the things that happened took place in, yes, the United States, but they have, you know, ramifications, implications up here in Canada. We had the Vietnam War protests, civil rights protests. Many There was some assassinations of key figures such as Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. There was a global pandemic that took place in 1968 that was called at that time the Hong Kong flu. Anyone remember 1968 and all the issues? Anyone? There's a few hands in the air. You know, those... These are moments, these moments like 1968, 2021, that create a lot of confusion and frustration. And as I listen closely, and perhaps you hear it too, if you listen closely, you might hear right now this cry to better understand exactly what is happening. Or even greater, not just what is happening, but what can I do to like stop it? What can I do to see that there is peace, to see that this conflict ends? Because what I think is happening here in the West, and I think it's been taking, for, taking place for some time, but I think what's happening is that we're seeing a great acceleration of this. And ultimately, it's good news because it's going to turn people back to God. But there is this, this beginning of the secularist revival that has taken place over the last few decades that is beginning to crack at the seams. Because for a long time, there was this belief that we could progress as a, a world, as a society, as a culture, apart from God. That we could feast at all the benefits of the kingdom without the king. And that as that the future, as long as we continue to progress, that the future had this one linear line towards a better world and a better future. But as what have we have learned right now in so many ways, this progressive dream is falling in on itself. And people are being left feeling discouraged perhaps even hopeless. And as Christians, I can't help but feel like these difficult moments are opportunities that present themselves every once, every few decades, maybe even once in a lifetime. 
That we have this opportunity, this God-given opportunity for the church to shine in ways that we can't when things are good. To be a sort of countercultural witness we were made to be. And so what we have right now to offer the world is probably not an answer to the what or the why, but what we do have to offer the world in spite of all this is one thing, and that is hope. We have hope to offer the world in this time of trouble. And it reminded me of a verse in 1 Peter that Peter said to the churches that were dispersed, which he described as strangers and, and foreigners. Even he used the word aliens. That's how he described the church living in, in that time and that culture. He said, be always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. And I really love that. You always need to be ready that if somebody asks, why are you hopeful right now? What gives you hope that you have the answer and it's right there and you're ready to give it? Why are you filled with hope right now? What gives you hope? And if you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't know what gives me hope, I'm going to encourage you right now to get into your Bible because there's so much in the Bible that tells us that there is a reason to have hope in seasons like this. Think about it. Honestly, just think, and maybe over the lunch you know, table later on today, you could turn to your family to say, what gives you hope? What makes you feel hopeful right now in this season? You know, what makes you excited for what God has in store for your tomorrow? Is it that God holds all things in his hands? And nothing is beyond his knowledge, his power, his foresight. Is that then no matter what happens, your joy and your salvation is secure, it's locked away, nobody can touch it? Is it that Christ is building his church? And even though these are difficult moments, God has been growing us and forming us into his likeness in ways that we weren't being formed and growing into his likeness in days before. But there's one reason, and I just mentioned it before we began the message. There's one reason that I have to be hopeful. And that is that in this time of divide and conflict, there is unity that we share as the body of Christ. Can I get an amen to that? There is a unity that we share as a body of Christ. But if unity is one of our great reasons to be hopeful, don't be surprised that one of the greatest tests, that one of the areas that we as a church experience some of the greatest uh, opposition or spiritual conflict as we are talking about this summer, it will exist around whether or not we can stay united in Christ when there are so many reasons to not be united at all. When you look at the early church, you know, I look at how severely tested they were when it came to their unity. And recently I've been reading through Paul's writings, and uh, I've, I've been reading through all of, of Paul's uh, letters and trying to keep like this, this moment in mind as I'm reading it, and I just see this theme over and over and over again of, being, of the church being significantly challenged to break their fellowship with one another over little issues that sort of were not from the Bible, were not given by Christ, but they sort of integrated their way into the church and began to cause disruption and division. And Paul's like, no, no. No, you are one in Christ. You know, Christ has made you one. It doesn't matter what ethnic background you come from. It doesn't matter, you know, whether you're circumcised or you're uncircumcised. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, male or female, slave nor free. You are one in Christ. And so be one in Christ. And I think right now is a moment like that when our unity is being tested once again. And I don't know, maybe you, for those of you who are older and wiser, you, have, you can look back in moments where the unity of the church was tested as significantly, but I can't think of a time when the unity of, of the church of today, in this moment in my lifetime, has been this seriously tested. Whether it's a political opinion, 
or controversial subjects like who's vaccinated, who's not vaccinated, and you look in the recent conversation, should we let the unvaccinated be in fellowship with the vaccinated, things like that. The world wants to know whether or not it's true. Are you really one in Christ? Are you one in Christ? Or are you one in Christ until things get difficult or maybe a little uncomfortable? And I believe one of Satan's ruthless pursuits is in the disruption and destroying the unity we share in Christ. For if the enemy can reduce our unity so that what unites us is anything other than Christ, he can reduce our voice and our influence in the world to which we are sent. He can minimize our effectiveness in showing others who Christ is and what he has done. And what I believe Jesus desires for his church right now is not for the church to be big or trendy or flashy or relevant, but has been our, always our primary call to be powerful in our witness, to be effective, to be influential. You know, we read at the very beginning of this message this morning, Matthew 5, 13, and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, and think about what he said in the context of that moment, that at a time when there was no church, there was no saints, there was no buildings, there was no traditions to look back on, that Jesus spoke, you are the salt of the earth. You are light of the world. And there it was. You know, like last week, Pastor Barry said that, you know, Genesis 1, that in the beginning God created the heavens of the earth, that by his voice he spoke, and that formless and empty void, suddenly there was life. And in the same way, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is speaking to an empty and formless void that is the church, and he speaks, and there it is. You are salt. You are the salt of the earth. And I think it be, we need to begin by looking at those first two words, you are. Because when Jesus says you are, he's not talking about you, the individual. He's talking about you collectively as the body of Christ. We are salt. That you are salt. That Jim, you are salt. Elizabeth, you are salt. Pastor Sam, you are salt. Because why? Together, we are salt. And the most amazing thing about being salt is whether we're talking about one grain of salt or an entire bottle of salt, if you would, the chemical properties of salt are, are made in such a way that salt can never stop being salt. It's a very stable compound. So no matter what happens or disruptions it has, salt never stops being salt. But what if I were to have you over for dinner? And you're sitting at my dinner table, and I, I'm excited. Hopefully, we soon we can begin doing that again. And while eating, you notice that, man, the meal was a little bit bland. You know, Terry made the meal, not my wife, Julia, or else it tastes really good. I made the meal, and it's a little bland. And you just said, do you mind just putting a little salt on my plates? And I unscrewed the salt shaker and took out a single grain of salt, and there you go. Would you, what would you do? What would you, what, how would you react? You, say, you asked for salt. I gave you salt. It's on your plate. You know, a single grain of salt will never stop being salt, but on its own, it has very little effectiveness to do what salt was made to do. And when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, he wasn't so, so much talking about taste as you and I think about salt. You know, when you and I think about salt, we think of variety and flavor. When I go to Costco, my choices are, do I want the barbecue or do I want the, the Miss Vicky spicy dill pickle chips? Anybody? Come on, testify. Has anybody? If you haven't tried them, go. Whew. But salt of the earth wasn't so much talking about how salt tastes, but how salt functions. It meaning that its potency or its effectiveness. Because in that day, salt was more than just flavoring. 
but actually salt was a very extremely and meaningful commodity due to its power of preservation. Think about the, how the refrigerator functions in our modern-day society, and that is the power of salt in that day. You know, so important, important was salt to first-century citizens, so necessary and how much they needed and relied on salt in that day. Some people were even paid in salt. And that's where we get that phrase. You ever heard the phrase, you know, you're not worth your salt? Some Roman soldiers would receive their entire paycheck in salt. In that day, friendship meals, when you would have a friend over and you would symbolize your friendship, you would sprinkle salt over your meal. Some Old Testament sacrifices actually require that you sprinkle salt onto um, the sacrifice in order for it to be acceptable to God. You know, what gave salt its saltiness was not how much or how little salt you used, but instead what, what Jesus was talking about, what made salt salty, was instead how pure and how uncontaminated that salt was. You see, salt had a very powerful purpose. Thus, it may, was made such a meaningful commodity. The very worst thing that could happen to your salt was for your salt to become compromised, to be mixed together with things like dirt or sand. Because if your salt lost its saltiness, as Jesus said, meaning if your salt became compromised, mixed together with things like dirt and sand, no longer was that salt good for anything to be, other than to be taken outside and thrown into the garbage heap. You know, it had lost its ability to do the very thing that it was made to do. It had lost its effectiveness, its potency, its power. And so in Christ, if he declares that this church, you are the salt of the earth, that for the church to be salt, what, that then mean, what does it then mean for us to lose our saltiness? What is it then to be rendered ineffective as we were made to be? Could it be like I mentioned earlier that we are trying to build our unity on things other than Christ? Could it be friendship with the world, as, as Scripture says, is basically adultery towards God? Could it be the desire to define good and evil instead of allowing God to be the one who gets to determine what is good and evil? You know, as the church, salt has lost its saltiness when we have compromised our effectiveness, our power, our love for God with a love for the things of this world. But here's the neat thing about salt— just as salt can never stop being salt, in Jesus, the enemy, when it comes to spiritual conflict, cannot take you, your salvation away in Christ. And this is really good news. Because you are declared salt, you will never stop being salt in Christ. But what we can become instead, though, is worthless salt. Salt that has lost its saltiness. We can become diluted, overcome by the cares of this world, instead of being a countercultural witness to the world. And so since Satan cannot rob you and I of our spiritual inheritance, what Satan will do instead is go after our purpose. Like we said this morning in prayer, just if you sense that there is this feeling of shame, that I'm not good enough, that does not come from God, that comes from the enemy. And that, that, that lie that, they, that you're told that you're not worthy enough, that you've been disqualified because of your past mistakes, that because of what you've done in the past has rendered you ineffective to go towards the future, that is the enemy's uh, way of trying to render you ineffective and impotent to the kingdom of God. And so today in this, in this series, I want to show you one of the ways the enemy tries to make us lose our saltiness, and that is through temptation. And one of the things that we want to do in this series over the, ne over the next several weeks is 
arm you with a knowledge in the areas relating to this topic of spiritual conflict. Because maybe you're new to the faith and you come to church and you hear the, mess, the, the sermon talk about temptation or conflict or angels and demons. And for many of us who grew up in the church, that is just common vernacular. When we talk about being tempted, we know what we're talking about. But there are those who come in who have no understanding what these topics mean. And so I think for us to be united, we need to have an understanding, a biblical understanding, on the different tactics used by the enemy. And I think at the very root of the enemy's attacks, sort of his primary weapon, so to speak, against the church is through the power of temptation. Well, what is temptation? What is temptation? I think we all sort of have this inherent knowledge because we've all been tempted before. But by definition, and I, and I want to say that the definition, as most definitions are, tend to be lacking. But this is how you know, the, the dictionary will describe temptation. It is a, simply a test or a trial that creates in you a desire, enticing you to either choose one thing or the other thing. So for example, if my wife were to make a delicious dessert, let's go with chocolate cake, and she were to say to me, as she often does, I only want you to eat one piece of the cake. Leave some for later. And later on that night, when everybody is asleep or just doing their own thing, and wet, there's cake there with all its glory left on the counter. Now, notice how the dictionary said a test or a trial. In that moment, I don't know, is this a test or a trial? Either way, I am enticed with a desire to not do what my wife has asked me to do, but to take one more piece. I can either respect my wife's request and obey her wishes, or I can choose to succumb to the fact that it's such a delicious chocolate cake and that's all that really matters. Now, if that's all that temptation was, would that really be a big deal? Be a big deal? I mean, your stomach might dis disagree or your wife might disagree, but the temptation we're dealing with here as Christians is temptation that has resulted in a lot of pain and suffering. And I know that I think, and, I, and I'm, I don't just think, I know that every single person that I see out here, you have experienced pain and suffering as a result of, of perhaps you falling into temptation or as a result as someone you love falling into temptation. We all have. It is, a very, it is common to us all. And these are the trials and tests that result in one being enticed to choose either what is good instead of, or what is evil. Instead of chocolate cake, the temptation we face as Christians is the desire to do, to be, to have what God has strictly forbidden in his word. You know, you can trace it all the way back to the very beginning. You talked about it last week, the big story, that in Genesis 3, we see the enemy use temptation to make Eve not just think that the fruit was good and pleasing to her eye, but that by taking it, she could be like God. That Adam and Eve could be like God. It was not just something that was desirous, but it was the choice that I could, I could make this choice on a level that God gets to make, you know, the choice what is good and evil. I can choose what God has strictly forbidden, I have the ability to do. Now, when it comes to temptation, the very, it's very important to begin with an understanding, and I want to make this very clear. God does not tempt us to sin, okay? I, some have asked that question before. Does God tempt us as believers? And the answer is no. God does not tempt believers to sin or to disobey him. James 1.13 says it this way. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
So we see that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anybody else. But what God will do, while he won't entice you and I to sin, what God does do, though, is test our faith. Remember, temptation is a test or a trial. And so, so in some form or way, you could consider what God does a temptation, but it is not a temptation to be indicted us towards sin, but it is a temptation to tempt you towards righteousness. That God puts a test or a trial in you and he's tempting you. Come on, choose holiness. I want to produce what is good and pleasing to me. But on the other hand, there's no question that what Satan does do is tempt, believer, tempt believers not to choose what is good and pleasing to the Lord as what the Lord puts in front of us in tests and trials, but will tempt us to do what is displeasing and contrary to God's ways. You know, the devil is aware of our weaknesses. He knows where you are weak, where specifically you are weak, and will seek to exploit it. Not that, as we read already, God won't provide you with protection. And, I'll, and, and isn't it amazing to think that every time you're tempted, I've been thinking about that, even this week as we've been, stu- I've been studying this, that God, every single temptation, God provides you with a way out. Isn't that neat? You know, I remember um, when I was a youth pastor doing the old corn maze thing, you know, we do that with the students. And I always, like, hated those things because you get kind of lost. But, you know, somebody always said, you know, if, you, if you're ever lost— Take every right. Take every right, and you'll, and you'll get out. That's the way that the, the maze is. I don't know if that's true or if that's like an urban legend. Just follow every right, and you'll be led right out. You know, every time that we are tempted, God show, gives you the way out. He shows you where the exit is. So the devil, he, he seeks to tempt us, but we also have to realize that not every temptation is from the devil. Did you know that? You know, the, the argument, the devil made me do it does not apply to every situation. Sometimes when we're tempted, it's actually not the enemy that's tempting you. You know, sometimes we think, oh, every situation, every temptation, it's like, ah, it's spiritual warfare. Sometimes it's just the desires of our flesh which wage war against our soul. That when you're tempted, something's happening, and it is a conflict between flesh and spirit. When you, when you are giving into the desire, your flesh is so happy while your soul cries out to God. And while every person in this room who has ever lived, and every, including the heroes of the faith, has not only been tempted, but has fallen under temptation with the exception of Jesus, the act of temptation, being tempted, is not a sin. I want to say that, especially the younger people who can barely be overcome, that being tempted is not a sin. It is the consequence of having a sinful nature, but it is not sin. But being tempted, while being tempted is not sin, what is sinful is when we choose to act on those desires. But here is why the enemy tempts us. James 1, 14 to 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then that desire, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, it brings forth death. And this is why I think the enemy loves to tempt us. Because temptation has this three sort of degree removed from death. That when you are tempted, you're like, it's just a small temptation. But if you, can, if you can put the desire in front of you and make you succumb to that desire, it leads you to sin, which then leads you to what the ultimate destination of sin is, death. And what happens is when we act on the desires, what we do is we feel ashamed, right? We feel uh, condemned, afraid. Adam and Eve, when they did what was wrong, what did they do? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Why? They felt ashamed. 
And so these feelings of, of, of giving into the temptation of our desires, they place an unnecessary wedge between us and God. So the answer to the question today is then, what are we to do? It, the answer to that question begins not with what are we to do, but what has already been done. Specifically, what has Jesus already done for us? Because I want you to know if the best that I could do today is bring you to an awareness of what temptation is and what it does, I would be doing a great disservice to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because all that I've mentioned about temptation, the most important thing to know, the most important thing to understand when it comes to temptation is what it says in Hebrews 4 verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Isn't that amazing? That our Jesus, our high priest, has experienced every temptation. You've felt that temptation. He's experienced it. But Jesus, who came from the Son of God, yet born of a woman, born under the law, fully God, yet at the same time fully human, every experience of his humanity, was ex- of our humanity, was experienced by the very Son of God. And that includes the temptation to do what is evil and contrary to the Father's will. Jesus was tempted but just as we are, but never once gave in to that desire. He never once sinned. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us that when Jesus was baptized with the Spirit in Luke chapter 4, the very first thing the Spirit did was lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the serpent, by the enemy. And there he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, just symbolically like the people of Israel were tested in the wilderness for 40 years. But unlike Israel, Jesus succeeded. He triumphed over the enemy. A lot of people think that Jesus in the wilderness was at his weakest after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights because that's what we assume. One who has not eaten for 40 days, you are weak. But what if he was not at his weakest point, but he was actually at his strongest points? What if Jesus was not that weak? To the, he was weak in the flesh, but he was not weak one bit in the spirit. What if the enemy did not tempt him at the very best time, but at the very worst time to tempt Jesus? I don't know. Just some questions I want to ask. But what was Jesus tempted with? First John 2, 15 to 16 outlines the three areas where temptation is common to us all, and therefore Jesus was also tempted. First John 2, 15 to 16 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. There are three areas where you and I are tempted. They are the desires of our flesh, the desires of our eyes, and the pride of life. And all three of these temptations were found in the wilderness and experienced by Jesus. Let's just go quickly through these. First, we see Jesus is tempted with the desires of the flesh. What was the first temptation that Jesus was offered by the serpent, by the enemy? Turn that stone to bread. Turn that stone to, or that stone to bread, which on the surface seems pretty harmless, even maybe has biblical precedence. Later on, Jesus would go on to feed 5,000 people, which is one boy's lunch. I mean, he had the power to do it. But turning stone to bread was not just about satisfying his own needs, which at that moment was hunger. It was a temptation to satisfy the needs of his followers who had their own fleshly desires. You know, Jesus could meet their needs physically at the expense of meeting their needs spiritually. 
You know, when he fed the 5,000 people, it says at the very end, you know, a lot of us were taught the, that, that story in Sunday school, but what we don't realize is after he fed the 5,000, the crowds in John's gospel says they tried to seize Jesus and force him to become king. And what did Jesus do? It says he retreated. He withdrew to be alone, to be, be with God. You know, by turning that stone to bread, Jesus would have been fully prevented from fully trusting in the providential care of his father. And for so many of us, the desires of our flesh are the most fundamental of all our temptations. Because trusting in God to lead us and to provide for us is so difficult. Especially in a culture that worships at the altar that you have the power to make your life whatever you desire it to be. You know, this temptation is a desire that leads us towards the sin of consumerism. It's the chief sin of our culture and the age that we live in. And we feast on the desires of our flesh when Jesus said that for those who want to have eternal life, they can only be found by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. How do we overcome this temptation? Jesus, I believe the answer is what Jesus said to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Watch and pray that you might not fall into temptation. Watch and pray. Why? Because the flesh is weak, but the spirit is what? It's willing. You have a willing spirit, a spirit that is up for the fight against the enemy, a spirit that says, you know, with prayer, with, with the power of Christ, I can overcome, we can overcome the enemy, but we need to pray and we need to watch. It's like that song that we sang this morning. Uh, I love that. What a friend we have in Jesus. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. How we overcome through temptations through prayer and watchfulness, because when our spirit is strengthened, our weak flesh is no match for our strong spirit. Number two, the second temptation was the desire of the eyes. You know, this is similar to the flesh, but a little bit different, because what the desire of the eyes is, is a manipulation of what is true so that our eyes and ears can be tickled so that it can suit our own desires. You know, in Jesus' day, there was a strong desire for the sensational, for the miraculous. And Jesus was tempted with this, this desire to throw himself from the temple so that he could be rescued by angels. For if the crowds were to see, look at that miracle, look at that power, certainly they would follow him. We see in Jesus' lifetimes when the crowds demanded of Jesus to do a miracle, but it says that in Jesus' hometown, he refused to give them a miracle. Why? Because of their unbelief. You know, a lot of times we think that we, we want to come to church and we want to see a miracle. And we think that the supernatural, which, I mean, we're a charismatic people. We believe in the supernatural moving of God. But sometimes that could, desire can become idolatrous. And we think that, oh, if people just were come to church and see this place on fire, then they would have faith. But the miraculous, the supernatural, is not to create faith, but instead it's to build faith. So in the parable of the sower, Jesus said, some will receive the gospel like seed that lands on rocky grounds. The gospel is received with joy, but when persecution and trouble comes because of following Jesus, they will quickly fall away. See, even we as Christians can succumb to the temptation by being led by the desires of the spectacular. And I think because truthfully we are tempted in this way because we are so terribly afraid of the mundane. You know, as a millennial... <laughs> I know I like to have some fun at, at millennial expense. Where our generation is so, and the generation behind us, we're so terribly afraid of boredom, of the mundane. We have stimulation screens, things in front of us at all times. 
And we, we are just so terribly afraid of the mundane, but the life Jesus offers us is a life of picking up your cross and following him daily. You know, it's promised hatred by the world because the world hated him first. It involves self-sacrifice of your wants and your desires with no promise that on this earth you will even get a reward. It's easy when confronted with the difficulty of obedience and faithfulness to be led astray by a movement that is more sensational or appealing to our eyes. And so the third temptation that Jesus encountered was a promise of, that Satan could not fulfill, and it was a shortcut to remove the suffering in his life. This was a bold temptation. Satan said, if you bow down and worship me, you can have all of this. You can have all the kingdoms of this world in their glory. The temptation was the Son of Man can come and have addition without subtraction, blessing without burden, success without suffering. But what this is is the false gospel through and through. The word for this temptation is secularism. It's wanting everything about my life to be about me and my comfort. It's wanting all the benefits of the kingdom without the king. We don't want this life of faith to be hard, difficult, uncomfortable in any way because we are only fixated on this life, not the life to come. These are the three temptations that is common to man. Flesh, our desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And these are the three temptations to choose the world over God. And these are the temptations that you and I, we have fallen under those desires over and over and over again. But in that same breath, this is where Jesus, in all of his humanity, remained faithful in every trial and temptation and has triumphed over the enemy's schemes. And so while we have fallen under these temptations before, don't put your head down. Do not be defeated. Do not live in shame. Do not feel condemnation, nor grow in fear of the evil one. For where you find your hope is in Christ. For in Christ, we too have the power to be tempted, yet not fall into sin. We can experience these desires, yet not give into these desires. In fact, God's word promises us that not one of these temptations that we have mentioned, not one of these temptations, whether it's flesh, it's eyes, it's pride, has the power to overtake you if you are standing in the power of Christ. Meaning in Christ you are more powerful than even the most powerful of temptations you've experienced. And that through the power of his Holy Spirit, you can resist and endure through every trial. And his word guarantees that not one temptation has the power to overcome you. Now, one temptation. In every struggle, in every desire, the temptation is the underdog in that fight. You are the betting favorite in Christ. And as an added bonus in every temptation, God will provide you with a way out. And so today, if you are struggling with temptation, and I wanted to go there this morning, I wanted to dig right into that topic because I know that it is relevant today, the topic of temptation, that in spiritual conflict, one of the greatest lies is just to ignore the desires of your flesh, and to ignore them, and that they will go away. But how we must overcome temptation is by, number one, standing guard in prayer. Jesus taught us that in the Father, we must ask him not to be led into temptation, but to be delivered from the evil one. If you are falling over and over in temptation, and you have not prayed and asked the Lord to give you strength, gosh, you are missing out. We stand guard in prayer. Number two, we walk in the light. Because how many of you know today that walking in the light does not mean walking free of sin, right? 
Walking in the light is, is, is not allowing sin to go live in the shadow. But it's allowing everything to be free in the light of Christ. Number three, coming to the cross each and every time we have fallen under that desire. That if you have sinned today, if you're sitting in the pew, or in the pew in the chair, and you've, been, you've fallen under temptation, and I'm telling you, I know what that's like. I encourage you, I plead you today, go to the cross. Find today in Jesus grace and forgiveness so that you may be cleansed by the perfect blood of Christ to wash clean even the most dirtiest of sinner. You might be here today and thinking, you don't know how much temptation I've fallen under. You don't know what I've done. All this talk about salt losing its saltiness, that's me. You name the temptation, and I've fallen under that desire. And I've seen the effect of sin that has been birthed from that desire. What I want you to know today is that like salt, you are never worthless in the eyes of God. You are worth every drop of Christ's blood. But if you today are salt that has lost its saltiness, if you have fallen under the desires of the flesh and allowed sin to be birthed in you, you might be asking the question, can salt be made salty once again? If salt has lost its saltiness, how can it be made salty? The good news today is that because of God's grace, when salt is no longer salty, when it is no longer good for anything other than to be thrown out and trampled on, by the power of Christ, through his grace and his forgiveness, that salt can be made salty once again. You think that Jesus was just asking a rhetorical question? No. How can be salt be made salty again? Through me. Through what I've done on the cross. Through my position right now in the heavens, standing as your high priest, waiting for you to come to me so that I can make intercession on your behalf to the Father. For you do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with your weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as you are, yet without sin. So this is what it says in Hebrews 4.16. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus was tempted in every way and did not sin, you are invited to come to him today, not fearfully, not with your head down, not cautiously, not in condemnation, but to come boldly with confidence to find mercy and grace and to be helped in your moment of need. You are salt of the earth. You are called by God to bear witness to Christ with great potency and power. And when we have failed, when we have fallen, when we have lost our saltiness, we, the church, can find forgiveness, redemption, and freedom in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so I want to invite you right now to stand to your feet. And for those of you today who are just in need of this prayer, this prayer of forgiveness, this prayer of salvation today. Maybe today you are here, you're visiting, and you're like, oh Lord, I have walked away from you, or maybe I've never, ever, ever chosen to give my life to you right now. I want to pray for you, but I also want to pray for those of you today who are just living under the weight of, of this temptation. You don't want to live under the desires of your flesh. You want to live under the desires of your spirit. Let us pray. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we love you today. And we thank you today that we can lift high the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is higher than every struggle, every downfall, every temptation. Your name is higher. Your name is greater. 
And so we rest and trust in your name today. And we thank you, O King Jesus, that you were tempted in every way, but you did not sin. We believe today, we believe today in the power of the cross that those of us who come to you today through the cross find grace and redemption and forgiveness in our moment of need. And so God, if there's anyone here today who has succumbed to the desires, maybe the desires of their flesh, the desires of their eyes, maybe it's pride of life. Oh God, we fall down at your feet and we just ask you to restore us to make us new once again. God, if there are temptations that we're not even aware of, God, we come to you as high priest and ask you to begin interceding on behalf of even the things that we are not aware of. Oh, Holy Spirit, reveal to us that which we struggle with, that which we are not even aware of today. But God, I pray over the church of Jesus Christ, the church that you declared is salt of the earth. Salt of the earth. And God, there are times we confess that salt has lost its saltiness. We have by, fallen under the enemy's schemes and been rendered ineffective by our own guilt. But God, through the cross today, you have redeemed us. You have washed us clean. You have purified us in your love today. And so we don't stand condemned. We don't stand ashamed. We stand washed clean as children of God. And so today we want to be salt. We thank you that you are restoring salt that has lost its saltiness. You are making it salty once again. And God, I pray, Lord, in the season to come, Lord, we would be reminded of our, our greatest calling, God, to be the salt of the earth, to be sprinkled all over our, our communities, our workplaces, our schools, our relationships. And where we are sprinkled, there we are called to be an agent of preservation, an agent of witness, an agent of love. So help us to be the salt that you have called us to be, O oh God. I pray, Lord, that when we are tempted, God, show us the way. Make it so clear. Show us how to, like Joseph ran from that home when tempted, how we can run from our temptations. Lord, let us believe today in Christ that no temptation can overcome us today, that, that no temptation is so powerful today that it can break the power of God that is within us. And when we fall, help us to get back up in grace, in your mercy, in your forgiveness. God, thank you today that you were, you were tempted, but you never sinned. Oh, Jesus, thank you that you were just willing to embrace the challenges of our humanity. You didn't have to, God, but you chose to. And so we come to you today, high priest. Wash us clean. Purify us. And please never stop making intercession on behalf of your people. Lord, we love you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. 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 Well, thank you so much for just coming to church today, being at home. And uh, we wish you a wonderful Sunday. God bless. We'll see you next week.